All right. So should I kick the show off? Let's do it. Let's go for it. All right. What episode number are we on? See, I got to open up the show notes. That shows you how awake I am. Well, I think. That sounds right to me. Chuck, you sound like way more tired than you did 30 seconds. Okay, hang on. I'm going to go. I'm going to get coffee, Jax. One sec. Sounds like you're actively falling asleep right now. We're roughly around episode 20 or something. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we, we've done about a dozen. Yeah. Chuck passes out. Welcome to episode. Your guess is as good as ours. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 12 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Howdy howdy. We also have Joaquin Larson. Hey, it's me with the dogs. Uh, AJ O'Neill is in the chat right now so he'll probably just tell us uh, important and happy things in the chat and we'll we'll uh, we'll voice for him. We also have a special guest and that is Adi Osmani. Howdy, I have no dogs. <laughs> and I'm I Charles Maxwell. Yeah, I just FedEx him. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. For the animal levels, lovers, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about design patterns in JavaScript. Um, Addy, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Um, I'm, I'm sure there's one or two people out there that don't know who you are. Sure thing. Uh, so my name is Addy Osmani. I'm a JavaScript developer at AOL. Uh, I've written a few open source books like uh, Essential JavaScript Design Patterns, Backbone, JS Fundamentals. Uh, I'm on the jQuery team. I've contributed to open source projects like Modernizer, and I do some other open sourcey stuff in my spare time. All right, yeah, we we love we love those projects, jQuery, Modernizer, um, jQuery. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joaquin was telling us how much he loves jQuery. Anyway, um, so we were we were having a discussion before the show, and I think it's interesting to talk about before we jump in on design patterns. And we were talking about uh, to do MVC. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, that's what it's called. Do you want to just explain what that is and why you did it? Sure. So a while back, I realized that you know as time went on, we were we were getting more and more MVC frameworks in the JavaScript world and and sort of structural solutions to try helping developers organize their code better. And I, I got to a point where it was it was difficult for me to, to like go and compare each framework, not just because, you know, some of them had bad docs, but they didn't all have examples of how to actually use the framework. And I found it really difficult. So I thought, well, why not create a project that has the exact same solution in every single one of these frameworks? So how does, you know, solution X try to structure models and views and controllers and, and what other bits and pieces it might have? And uh, I just wanted to make it really easy for developers to, you know, get a feel for what a framework was like before they went and explored it further. So, you know, maybe you'll take a look at 10 frameworks, maybe you'll take a look at five, and you'll just find two that you really like and just go see if, you know, it's, it's a good fit for your project. But that's that's the essence of what to do MVC is all about. All right, cool. And I think it was Joaquin that pointed out that uh, not all of the frameworks really compare um, in the same way, feature to feature, you know, and whatever. Um, so what, what's kind of your, your take on that? Because, you you know, you look at some and they have different capabilities than others. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's a challenge that we've been trying to solve for the past while. I um, mean, our upcoming releases, we, we are trying our best to sort of make each implementation as consistent as possible so that, you know, developers have a fair view of what they can do with the framework versus how much extra effort they might have to go to, to get it as good as something a little bit more mainstream, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also, real, you know, we realized that it's really, really difficult getting a baseline application to help you compare, you know, 20 or 30 different frameworks. 
And one way that we're going to try addressing that is by coming up with a bunch of end-to-end applications. So, you know, a complete application built with Backbone or Ember or CanJS or any of the others so the developers can get a really good feel for how all the other little parts involved in building an application are solved by that framework. And we're going to try documenting that as, as much as we can. And, and hopefully that'll give developers an even better way of making their minds up about what to use. Yeah. That wait, wait, sense. wait. So you're saying that you didn't build the to-do MVC stuff because you had a lot of to-do things? I, I just thought it was because Abs- you had No, absolutely. I, I woke up one day I woke up one day and I thought, well, why don't I have an application in 20 different frameworks for each of the different aspects of my life I need to remind myself yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. It seems like it would really help you organize. Yeah, he, yeah, fi- like- he finished reading Getting Things Done and he said, <laughs> I need to do to do some to do applications. Champion procrastinator. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome! So, um, a lot of people were asking that we get you on the show to talk about design patterns in JavaScript. And um, I remember when I was a new developer, I really didn't have a good idea of what a design pattern was. Mm-hmm. Can you can you jump in and just explain that really quickly, like what they are and how they're used? Absolutely. So, design patterns provide us with like proven solutions to recurring problems in development. So they try to build upon the experience of developers that have been trying to solve similar problems to us over a number of years. And JavaScript is obviously not the first programming language. There have been tons over the past 20 to 30 years. And design patterns just mean that we can take some of the learnings from those other languages and hopefully apply them to JavaScript and apply them to the other projects that we're working on a day-to-day basis that can hopefully save us some time. Yeah. That, now, you know, patterns patterns address a ton of things. Like, you know, developers are going to go into projects and wonder, well, what's the best way for me to separate concerns? And what's the best way for me to offer, you know, simple APIs that are easy for people to consume, but which are, you know, still allow me to be complex behind the scenes if I need to? Or, or how do I to couple my application so that each part of it doesn't have to directly speak to another part. And patterns help us with all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, were they first originated with the book by the Gang of Four, or is that... No, no. Um, design patterns actually were, were originally defined by an architect um, called Christopher Alexander a, a long, long time ago. But um, design patterns elements of reusable object-oriented software was one of the first sort of breakthrough books to um, sort of describe how, soft, how design patterns can be applied to software design and they had a really huge impact on how software engineers appreciate design patterns and how they apply them to their projects. But um, I guess I realized after reading the book that, you know, first design patterns aren't really covered as much in, in computer science courses um, at most universities. And secondly, there's there, there was at least no open resource that developers could go to to just learn about patterns and how they apply to JavaScript. So I figured, well, you know, why not write one? Yep. And, and I, I just want to back you up on that because uh, I have a college degree in computer engineering. It's not computer science science, but I took quite a few computer science classes. And yeah, I, I don't think the word design and the word pattern were even used in the same sentence, let alone <laughs> together. So I mean, the, closest, the closest you get is probably algorithms and data models. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that, that they only kind of like scratches the surface, especially in terms of you know, interactions and reusability. We we did some design pattern stuff in one of my classes. Um, I think one of the dangers with design patterns, though, is that people uh, build patterns instead of applications. Eventually, it's it's like other I don't know cool new things that you discover in in computing. Like you first learn about meta programming in Ruby or like async stuff in Node.js, then you you go and do horrible, awful things with it by using it like where it doesn't need to be used. So yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. People, you know, don't use design patterns, you know, if you're not using it for the right reason. Like I, I've seen people that will just see a design pattern in my book or in other books, or they'll see some an article about a design pattern hacker move and sorry. <laughs> 
that's cool. Um, and they'll be like, you know, I should be using what the cool kids are using. Surely, you know, it's on Hacker News, I should be using it. But that's that's completely the wrong reason to be using a pattern. You should be studying what patterns are available, um, form your own conclusions about them, and try to pick out what makes the most sense for your project. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, well, one thing that I, I've found with design patterns that I think is interesting is that in a lot of cases, I'll start building something, and I'll, I'll get it mostly fleshed out, and then mm-hmm. some other developer will come and look at my deal and go, oh, you're using the observer pattern. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I am? Go look. I guess I am. And and I think I think that's just, it's also a good way of checking your homework, I guess, where you can uh, get in and, and have a look and go, okay, you know, um, yes, this, this problem actually fits this design pattern. And that's sort of what I intuitively wound up building. Exactly. I mean, the, the thing I like about design patterns is that you get like this formal language that helps us to, to more commonly share an idea. And it's, it's harder for us to, you know, describe syntax and semantics and things like that about what a pattern is versus just saying, well, hey, I'm using the observer pattern. Yeah, AJ pointed out patterns are invented, not or patterns aren't invented; they're discovered. And yeah, it's just it's 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 so interesting. At the same time, you know, you can also look at a pa- a problem and uh, at the same time realize that uh, a particular pattern describes well what you want to do. And then exactly what you're saying, then you can start to explain to somebody else instead of saying, well, we need this out here that that does this, and this over here that does this. You can just look at them and go, well, we're going to use this pattern, and we're going to tweak it a little bit this way to match our problem. And so it does. It defines that language that that immediately provides this huge amount of context around um, the way that you're going to approach and solve the problem. I think it's also important to realize or like it's important for, for, de- for developers to realize that there are really nice and interesting problems to solve at higher levels of, of abstraction as well. You know, a lot of people tend to like reinvent the wheel all the time. And, you, you know, I was, I was commenting on jQuery and it was like one of those things where, you know, each time you start something, you have to kind of start from fresh or bring what you had from before because there's no kind of building blocks in, in terms of that. But I, I'm pretty sure Addy is working on that. <laughs> Yeah. So so let's jump in and talk about some of these design patterns. I mean, I was looking at, uh, what is it, essential JavaScript design patterns? Yeah, essential JavaScript design patterns. And, you know, there were quite a few interesting ones in there. One that I want to jump on real quick that I thought was interesting was that you had the dry pattern, which I don't really think of as a design pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, well, whilst it's not it's not necessarily, there's a disclaimer right above the, the dry pattern that says it's not necessarily a design pattern, but it is a nice way of thinking. And sometimes when developers try approaching problems, they they, they sometimes forget that, um, you know, you, you don't have to include as much repetition in your code and you don't have to be doing things, you know, in several different ways when, when you can simplify them down to maybe five or six lines of code instead. And it's just one of those patterns that, I guess, improve readability and, and remove the need to, to include, um, you know, a ton of code that, that doesn't have to be there, I guess. Yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, it's it's a principle. The first time I was exposed to it was when I was reading uh, The Pragmatic Programmer. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it, it's something that uh, they talk a lot about when, when you're programming Ruby on Rails is dry and, and that's why you have MVC um, and I think I think it's an interesting principle that definitely applies to a lot of these because you wind up putting together these design patterns to help you um, avoid the repetition and avoid the problems that come out of repetition. Mm. But yeah, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and you know, I, I can see how it it might you know kind of come and bump up against what a design pattern is. But uh, anyway, that that makes a lot of sense. So um, one of the other design patterns that I wanted to ask about that I don't completely get is mm-hmm. MVVM, mm-hmm. and I understand that it's similar to MVC, but 
but I, I don't completely understand what, you know, how they're related and what the differences are. Oh, that's that's absolutely cool. So I'm going to I realize that, you know, this is JavaScript Jabber. There are going to be a ton of JavaScript developers that are very familiar with MVC on here. But for those that aren't, I'll just go through that very, very quickly. So in MVC, we've got sort of three parts. We've got models, views and traditionally controllers. Uh, the models manage domain-specific data for an application. So, you know, if we're creating something like, say, Facebook, you probably have models representing users and photos and, and videos and stuff like that. Models might have validation rules and, and defaults, for example. To uh, So if you upload a photo, for example, it, a model can have a default state to make sure that it's visible to everybody on your timeline. Um, views, and, and when models change, they notify um, anybody that, that are, that's watching the model about that. So, so views, for example. Now, views... Um, in MVC at least, are representation of models that have like a, a filtered down look of, of their current state. So looking at, say, the user model again, you could easily have multiple views for that model. You could have um, you, know, you could have one that shows the movies you've watched on Netflix, the, the music that you've listened to on Spotify, etc. And views usually observe models and they notify, they're notified when um, models change. But they also come in two different flavors. And this is going to come back into something I'm going to talk about in MVVM. Views have two flavors. They have, um, they can be passive or they can be active. Okay. Uh, sorry, I saw something about someone being muted. Um, so views can be passive or they can be active. Now, a passive view is considered relatively dumb. Um, and that means that it's mostly manipulated by a controller, but an active view is something that has a lot more logic in it. It might have data bindings, it might have events, it might have behaviors. And patterns like MVVM use active views. But I'll, I'll go into a little more detail about that soon. And then again, in MVC, we've got controllers. And they're supposed to be like an intermediary between models and views. And I guess they're classically responsible for, for a few different things. They're, you know, they, they update the view when the model changes and they update the model when a user changes um, the view. So if you're, if you're, for example, editing the caption on a photograph, um, that's you editing a model effectively. And so your controller will then um, update that for you when you've made changes to the view. But, you know, we, we talk about MVC, but the reality is that when, we, when it comes to JavaScript frameworks, there's not really a true sense of MVC. Um, I can't I can't think off the top of my head of many frameworks that actually follow this pattern exactly. If we took Backbone.js, for example, um, that completely omits the controller. And we, we usually say Backbone is MVC or something like it. But Backbone completely omits the controller. And it moves all of the responsibilities of the controller into the view. So, you know, you have controllers, you have views, you have models, sorry, you have, you know, views, models, collections, routers, but there's no controller logic um, in its, its own separate component. It's in the view. Yep. And so it can be challenging sometimes if, if developers are reading classical literature and they're saying, okay, well, I sort of get what MVC is, but why is it that all these frameworks I'm using um, approach it a little bit differently? And the reason for that is usually because the, the framework authors have um, interpreted the pattern a little bit differently or they found that you can be a little bit more flexible with it. Um, and, and that's, you know, with, back, with Backbone at least, that's a good thing. It means that um, I can develop an application that, you know, maybe just has a single model and multiple views and, and doesn't need a controller at all. But it, it, it can get challenging. Challenging. So I'll, I'll talk about MVVM now. So we've talked about models, views, and controllers. Um, in MVVM, which stands for Model View View Model, the model is very, very similar to what it is in MVC. The view is is mostly the same, but it's it has some subtle differences that are worth noting. So the view in MVVM is essentially an interactive user interface, and it represents the state of another component in MVVM called the view model. Now the view model is like a specialized controller, and it acts like a data converter. So so 
whatever information you have in your model, the view model can change that information into view information. And it can also pass commands from like the view to the model. So one example of that is like your model, um, your MVVM model might contain, you know, a data attribute in Unix timestamp format. Um, and your view model could actually go and format that into something a little bit more friendly for your view. So when it actually goes to displaying it, the view doesn't need to convert that data itself. It could if, if you wanted it to do that. Um, I just heard someone say I'm hypnotizing to listen to you. I don't know if that's a good thing or a good thing for a bad thing. Yeah, that was Joaquin in the chat. And yeah. Um, okay. I, I was just thinking something along the same lines. I was like, man, he, he's he's a really dynamic, you know, speaker. It was just, yeah. You explain things very well, though, so. You talk pretty. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you say that, I translate that in my brain to he has no social life. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> oh, you, you should so, hear our other shows. You know, Jamison's <laughs> over there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we were talking about model view models and, and view uh-huh. models essentially act as a middleman between your models and your views. And they can also expose methods for helping you to maintain view state. Now, um, going back to the view again for a moment, um, I guess the, the MVVM view, like we talked about the idea of views being both passive and active, where the passive one is dumb, but the active one isn't. The view in MVVM is actually active, meaning that it does a little bit more. Um, MVVM strongly promotes this idea of data bindings. Now, if you've explored, you know, frameworks like Knockout.js before, you, you're probably aware of this idea of having data bindings in your markup, which are then passed on to other parts of your application. It's, you know, some developers like them, some feel that it's a little counterintuitive having sort of logic and bindings in your markup when they could be completely separate. Um, right. that's that that sounds like mustache to me where they, you know, yeah. they try and strip all the logic out and it's, yeah, it's just yeah. dumb data. Mm. But it, it can also contain events and behaviors and stuff like that. But, you know, the, I guess the, the, the framework that most people know MVVM for or probably will know MVVM for is Knockout at the moment or I guess Kendo MVVM, which is another variation by, by another company. But, um, you know, in Knockout, your view is effectively just a HTML document with your markup in it, declarative bindings, and those link to your view model. Uh-huh. Um, I've personally, you know, I it, it took me a long time to really appreciate why someone would want to use data bindings in their in their markup. Um, but the reason why, I guess, MVVM is, is of interest to some people is that you might have a team where you have, I guess, UI developers and UI designers that want to be working on your view and you want to be able to allow the rest of the developers working on your project to focus on the view model and the models. So, you know, things that are that contain more of the business logic and behavior. And so this pattern can can help you with that because those designers could be focusing on the view. They could be including sort of data bindings in the markup without having to go writing logic themselves. And it can, it can be useful in that sense. Um, it's it's I can the performance sit- aspect though. If you need to uh, like refresh only one, one uh, aspect of the UI, then it kind of you know, it becomes a, a valuable thing to be able to do. Definitely, definitely. But because, um, I mean, sometimes you have like really, really big UIs with thousands of elements, and if you're mm-hmm. re- refreshing the whole thing, or you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it has it has some some interesting pros and some interesting cons. I mean, most of the cons are what what I guess the majority of JavaScript developers used to keeping their logic outside of the markup uh, will feel like. I personally probably wouldn't be writing a project that uses data bindings. I just feel it somewhat, you know, counterintuitive um, as a JavaScript developer to be to keep it, to keep all that logic in there. But you know, like I said, if 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 you're in a team where you find yourself needing to keep 
that separation where some people are able to focus on the view and other people focus on all the other logic. MVVM can be immensely useful to you. But uh, I, I guess I also wanted to mention it, and this is something that I, I covered in Essential JavaScript Design Patterns, but also in a recent article on MVVM. Um, you don't have to keep all of your data bindings in your markup. Uh, there are actually ways with Knockout.js to keep all of your data bindings in a binding object completely separate to your markup. Mm -hmm. And you can use data classes instead just to refer back to that logic and back to those bindings. So the amount of, I guess, um, logical hooks or, or declarative bindings in your market can be as minimal as you want. But I then get to a point where I think, well, if you're going to do that, maybe it makes more sense to be using something else. But it's it's interesting. It's, it's definitely interesting. Right. So I'm a little curious then after everything you, you've done with to do MVC and, you know, looking at these different design patterns and stuff, um, which of the MVC or MVVM or MVP, which we didn't talk about this model view presenter, um, mm -hmm. which of all these libraries do you use usually prefer on your projects. And you can't say it depends on the project. You have to pick the best one. <laughs> I'm, I'm somewhat glad Yehuda isn't on this call. You beat me. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so the one you I, I mentioned earlier that I'm writing a book about Backbone.js. And so it's, it's probably not a huge surprise that the one that I currently prefer the most is Backbone. Uh, the reason for that, in addition to some of the sort of enterprisey reasons, like, you know, there's a, there's a huge community around it. It, lots and lots of ways to extend it and tons and tons of um, large companies actually investing in building apps with Backbone, I find it extremely flexible. And something that you'll find even people who are like committing, you know, codes of Backbone.js will tell you is that once you really understand how Backbone works, you know, even if it doesn't completely support MVC in its classical form, it's flexible enough that you can you can use it in a way that works best for your project without subscribing to just one way of doing things. As, as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm currently working on a rather large application at AOL where we effectively have an extremely small number of, of views and models in the application, even though it's quite large. And I'm making use of a huge amount of component reuse in there. But this is something that I, I personally find Backbone really useful for because it's flexible enough for me to do whatever I want with it. If I wanted to introduce additional parts in there, if I wanted to say, um, I don't know, spin off some some other layer that, that further breaks down you know, concerns um, in a way that Backbone doesn't do at the moment, it's not that difficult for me to do that. And I don't know that I could say that about all of the other frameworks that are out there. Um, having said that, um, I will say that um, I'm excited about some of the other frameworks that are out there, just so that you know they don't gang up and beat me. Um, I, I really, really like Ember. I like. I think that you know once they have a lot of documentation and some more solid examples down, which I know that um, Yehuda and Tom are working on at the moment, that's going to be you know it's going to be phenomenally interesting to see. Uh, Can.js by Justin Mayer and uh, what used to be Jupiter Consulting but is now Bitovi. They're the guys that that worked on JavaScript MVC. Uh, Can.js is really really cool. Um, it's it's sort of been built in a way where it's extremely lightweight, so it's it's in some ways um, supposed to be a competitor to Backbone, but it's got some it's got some really really neat things in there. I'm gonna quickly sort of look this up and just point out one or two of them. Um, Justin Mayer was like showing me this uh, right before they released it, but it's one sec. It's got everything from sort of live binding to some other magic that uh, I have to say while you're looking that up, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really disappointed we're not gonna have uh, like you and Jerry 
Jeremy tag teaming to, <laughs> on Yehuda, you know, the, the backbone versus Ember round two. I, I, I am more than happy to let Jeremy and Yehuda do that themselves and just <laughs> sit back in the audience. I, I have to say, though, that it wasn't, I, I was very grateful that it wasn't this huge bash fest. And at the mm-hmm. same time, I mean, it was so interesting because, you know, they're, they're talking about these trade-offs and, you know, some of it was at a really high level, you know, design level. And some of it was, you know, they really got down into the nitty gritty of how their frameworks work. And uh, it, I think it turned out to be more informative than it really turned out to be hostile. And that was, it, uh, if, if you haven't listened to it, I, I highly recommend you go back and, and give it a good listen because it, it was really informative about how these people think about the problems that they're trying to solve. And especially since they're trying to solve in general problems mm-hmm. using these particular um, design patterns as opposed to, you know, a very specific problem for a very specific website. So can I just quickly ask you, Eddie, uh, what do you think about UE3? Um, to be completely honest, I, I haven't used it extensively myself. Uh, another member of our team built the, the UE example into do MVC, but you know, I'm, I'm sure I can take another look at it one of these days. Yeah. No, it, it strikes me because we see all these smaller startups um, starting up um, uh, frameworks, and they all seem to basically be recapitulating the functionality that, that's in UE3 already. Mm-hmm. And and with a lot of these different things, so now we need Ender.js for loading. We mm-hmm. need you know all these different kind of things for dynamic binding, and and these are things that are already in you. And I'm I'm always kind of you know, I'm just wondering if it's, a, if it's a Yahoo name and the purple you know purple colors that are kind of keeping people back. Well, I th- I think that it, you, you made a really really interesting statement in that you know UE already has most of these things sorted out. Um, I think a few years ago we had the Dojo Camp, for example, saying something very very similar. And I, I love Dojo. I'm not saying anything bad about Dojo, but um, I think that we've come to a point where we understand that you know developers are diverse enough that they're not always going to want to do things in a single subscribed way um, that you know a framework might you know might give out of the box. And we do currently have, I guess, enough tools that it's not that difficult for us to put together our own toolkit um, if, if we need to. There, you know, there are situations where it's going to take a lot more time to and you have to, to make sure you've got, you know, build processes that work and, and, and take care of unit testing, all those things, you know, on your own. But I guess it works for some developers and, and some prefer something a little bit more, more packaged um, is, is my comment. All that. All right. Did you find what you were looking for on can.js? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 got it's got a ton of useful things. One of the one of the nice things I found about can is that it's also built in a way where all of the individual components of it. So you know, I'll, I'll read these off very very quickly. You've got you know um, can.model and can.ejs and routers and observers and all sorts of things. But all of these different parts can actually function um, outside of this library. So you can actually take bits and pieces of it and start using them um, separately, which I thought was was actually quite interesting. But um, CanJS is also, you know, we, we, we've got um, the, the team over at Batovi were kind enough to build us some to-do apps for to-do MVC. And they didn't just, you know, Can was built in a way where it's not just saying, you know, you can use jQuery with this. They've actually gone to the effort of creating special builds of their library where you could be using it with jQuery or Zepto or Dojo or UE or MooTools. And it'll use whatever functionality those libraries already have um, to avoid sort of duplicating it on top. So you know, like if you go to the CanJS website, which is like canjs.us, what you'll see is they actually have different file sizes for the, the var- variations of Can that work with different libraries. So for the jQuery version, for example, if you wanted to use jQuery with it, they've got a version that's like 8.5K. But the, the version that just uses like vanilla JavaScript, for example, is going to be a lot slimmer. Um, and 
they've got things like live binding and, and magic tags and all sorts of other wonderful things. But I, I suggest people, you know, check it out. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's just come out over the past couple of weeks. So it might not be completely ready for prime time just yet. But I certainly found it interesting. Yeah, you can't even find it on Google. That's a, that's a really cool feature. Um, I know that one of the things that bothers me about Backbone is its dependence on jQuery. And I know you can kind of rip it out, but mm-hmm. I just wish that more people went through the effort of making their their uh, libraries kind of uh, like selector library and Ajax library agnostic. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Well, isn't it kind of the other way around? Because I mean, there's functionality in underscore, which is more of a, a tighter bound dependency, which basically duplicates functionality in jQuery. That's in some cases that's true, and I've 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 heard some people say that you know there there are cases where, where you know you might only need ten percent of what underscore has, and yet people will still include the whole thing. I, I think it's an amazing project, but at the same time, um, I, I I I think that the idea of building your library in a way where you're using the best parts of whatever else someone else is going to be including on the page is a really interesting take on it, and I, I would love to see more frameworks trying that out. I think it's an interesting. Idea. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's get back to uh, design patterns for a minute. Mm-hmm. Does, does anyone have another design pattern they want to talk about? I mean, I have I have a whole bunch, but well, I, I think know. it'd be cool to talk more about MVP. You mentioned it briefly, but we didn't really define what it is and how it's different. Sure, that, sure, that, that would be me. <laughs> was it because you didn't want to know what MVP was? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm the MVP. Okay. The most oh, valuable okay. player. Got it. Anyway. Okay. All right. Oh, I should I should probably also mention that the, this whole class of um, architectural uh, patterns is known as MV Star. I think Yehuda was actually mentioning to me on Twitter a few days ago that he's going to start calling this all MV Star. So it's MV Star. Um, anyway, back to MVP. Uh, so MVP is, is, it's quite similar to MVC and some people would even say the backbone is a little bit more MVP than it is MVC. But the idea is if you want to reuse as much presentation logic as possible in your application, um, MVP is, is what you're going to probably end up using. And, and I should probably say MVP is model view presenter. So let's say you've got, um, applications where you might have, I guess, complex views and a, a lot of user interaction that, you know, you might find MVC isn't the best fit for because you'll probably require a huge number of controllers for it, for example. Um, I say controllers, but fit that into whatever it is that the frameworks you're using, you know, consider a controller. Uh, in MVP, all of that complex logic can usually be encapsulated into a much smaller number of presenters, like you could use a single presenter for it if you wanted, and that can greatly simplify maintenance in some cases. So, so like MVP, M, sorry, MVP views are usually defined through an interface. This is slightly different to the way MVC and MVVM work. So when you're defining an MVC, MVP view, it's defined through an interface, and that interface is technically the only point of contact that you have between the system and your view. And MVP also um, lets developers write like their presentation logic without having to wait on designers to produce layouts and, and graphics for the application and stuff like that. So in that light, it's a little bit like MVVM without the data bindings. I was going to say, this sounds a lot like MVVM. Yeah, so it's it's a little bit like MVVM without the data bindings. So one could almost say that MVP is MVV is, is essentially MVC with a slightly more designer-friendly um, way of doing things. It's, it's not massively different, I'll put it that way. Right. So I have a broader question about all this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. These all seem so similar. I mean, does it really matter whether you choose MVVM or MVP or MVC or, or whatever? I, it, it does like, matter. How else it, are you going to know who's right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, but there's there's a little bit of like paralysis of choice. Yeah, right? You have 30 yeah. different frameworks and mm-hmm. it seems like the effort you would spend to evaluate them all carefully might be wasted if you would just pick one and do it, you know? That's that's that that is true in in one sense, but 
the way the way that I usually approach these is my knowledge of these patterns means that you know when I do pick a framework, um, understanding how they were classically defined. So understanding how MVC was classically defined, for example, means that I have a better idea of perhaps how I could go about using a framework. So with Backbone, for example, knowing that it perhaps has a lot more controller logic in the view means that if I wanted to, I could be a little bit more classic and separate that out further if I wanted to, if I found that easier. Um, it just means that, you know, if I'm using Knockout's MVVM, uh, perhaps taking on some learnings that other people have had when they were using MVVM for things like, you know, Flex development or, or Windows Presentation Foundation, it really does hurt me saying these things. But um, when people were using <laughs> those things, <laughs> taking on the learnings that they had can be useful to you. Um, and I would say, you know, don't, you know, don't go learning these patterns thinking that, you know, that's going to be the be all and end all of how you actually go using a framework or, or how you go picking out a framework. It's not. In a lot of cases, frameworks are going to be using something completely different. They might be, you know, using their own variation of, of MV star or M star star even. So um, it, yeah. it sounds like you're saying that knowing these patterns helps you um, understand how to to best use the strengths and weaknesses of different frameworks. So you're yes. kind of working with the framework instead of fighting against it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. It'll also help you in a lot of cases. For example, even if it's not strictly MVVM or MVC, mm -hmm. if if it's somewhat, you know, if it's close enough to be, you know, lumped in with the other ones that are that are also following MVC, mm -hmm. then in a lot of cases you can make the, you know, you can make the distinctions and make the right decision in the first place as to which framework you want to use because your problem set and the way that you're going to approach this particular application matches up better with MVP over MVC. Exactly. And so, you know, it, it, it works both ways, it, it, both in the decision on how, on which one to use, and then later on in how you use it and how you can possibly take advantage of some of the features that it has or doesn't have, you know, based on that, that design or that design pattern. Exactly. So one other um, pattern that I think we see a lot in JavaScript that uh, um, I don't know that uh, many people really even think a lot about is the observer pattern. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so the observer pattern, from what I understand, is basically you have a, a something that's publishing events or, you know, events is fine. And then mm -hmm. um, you have something else that kind of um, captures those events and then um, reacts to it in some way. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, the observer pattern is all about sort of having subscribers that watch other objects, which we call publishers. And we provide a means for subscribers and publishers to have this relationship where whenever something interesting happens in your application, um, your subscribers can go and react based on that. And the reason you would do the, any of this stuff is to try decoupling your application further. So one problem that developers regularly have these days is they'll build things in a way where every part of their application is speaking directly to, to, to another part. So you might have um, multiple modules that are responsible for, for a variety of different things. And you'll say, okay, well, I'm going to have the module responsible for, you know, I guess, uh, composing how a shopping cart's going to look, or, uh, how a shopping basket's going to look on the screen. Um, being responsible, it's being directly tied to a module that perhaps deals with currency or something like that. That's a really, really bad example. But um, let's imagine we have two modules that are directly communicating with each other. The problem there is that when I go and I want to start building, you know, parallel applications, um, I'm going to perhaps run into an issue where I'm building the exact same logic multiple times over rather than reusing the work that I've previously done. Mm -hmm. And instead of you building things in a way
way where, you know, every single module is speaking to another module directly. Using the observer pattern can be really, really useful because it just means that you're broadcasting out um, events of interest and other parts of your page or your application are just going to react to that. And this is also useful because you can build your application um, in ways using the observer so that it's, you know, it, it could be even, um, I guess, fail, fail safe or fail proof because it, other parts of your application um, might not necessarily, I guess, crash if, uh, you know, someone is, isn't directly touching them. I guess an example of that is, let me think. Uh, so let's say we have a mail application and you're going to have, you know, a, a few different views to this. You're going to have some, a composer view. You're going to have an inbox. You're going to have contacts and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, using the observer pattern can mean that, you know, even if one part of your application crashes, let's say that, you know, something that controls me pulling in the latest messages crashes. Um, because I'm just going to be broadcasting events saying, okay, well, there are new messages that are now available. There is, you know, someone has triggered an action to, um, create a new composition window or or there's a new notification for you know a new message having arrived. Um, I can actually build my system to be reactive so that none of the other code responsible for stuff even gets touched if um, if that part gets I guess fall, if that part falls over. I don't know if I'm if, if I'm explaining that as as well as I could be. But does, another, does any- example, another example could be if you're dynamically loading in widgets, mm-hmm. so you you are loading in widgets later on that might be showing a different kind of um, interface to, to the basic models that you have. So you can basically load in all kinds of widgets later on or turn them on and turn them off um, independently of each other. Yep, exactly. But the, the whole idea with the observer pattern is really just to make sure that your system is as free from, I guess, coupled connections as possible. Now, I have a question about this with regards to JavaScript because mm-hmm. it seems like most of the JavaScript engines, both in browsers and in Node.js and others like it, already have an event loop that behaves somewhat like an observer pattern or mm-hmm. Or kind of a backward observer pattern, I guess, where they throw an event out and then anything that's, well, no, it is observer pattern because anything that's subscribed to that, that event will then fire off. So so is this something that's inherent to the language or am I kind of misunderstanding or missing the point? Oh, I don't, I don't think it's something that's inherent to the language, but you, you will find in most, you know, in most environments that there is some need to have um, a decoupled way of communicating and broadcasting. Um, it, it's not necessarily always referred to implicitly as, you know, the observer pattern or the publish subscribe pattern. Um, but, you know, if, if we took uh, jQuery, for example, I know that not everybody on the call likes jQuery. But, <laughs> but um, you can you just know. say Joaquin. And <laughs> so, <it>. so, <laughs> So uh, quite a few versions ago, we actually had this concept of having custom events in jQuery where you could have sort of, um, you could bind something and you could trigger actions, etc. And whilst we didn't explicitly say that that was the observer pattern or that was a publish uh, subscribe you know, implementation, it effectively could have been used for that. And uh, Ben Allman, who's a really, really popular um, you know, plugin writer in the jQuery community, actually just created a, a nice wrapper around that. Because even though that particular library didn't say, you know, we have you know, we support PubSub, it's possible to use existing event systems in many cases to either simulate that behavior or do something very, very similar to it. Yep, that makes sense. All right, well, we're running out of time. We did get a question on Twitter. Uh, looks like it was from Chris Smith. Is that the one that you're going to read, Jameson? Yeah, yeah, that was the one I was thinking about. Uh, it, it's not so related he, to design patterns, but we have he, you on the show, so we'll ask. Yeah, <laughs> okay. he's asking, um, why do you favor AMD require JS? Is it just real world, real world needs or uh, just the belief that it makes sense? So it sounds like, is it like because it's just practically the best thing, it's the best thing out there right now or because you, you think it's the best thing overall? So l- let me let me flip that question over. Uh, is is he trying to say, why do I prefer AMD over CommonJS, for example, or why do I use AMD at all? Uh, 
Let's, it, it let's go with like, over common JS because I, I think you have to use some kind of script like dependency resolution thing. It does. I just hate the require everything in global scope and figure it out later thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, mo- modern module formats, even though, you know, some people would say that they're interim standards really do help us a lot. And I love that, you know, they, they get rid of the global issues and the namespacing issues and independence yeah. and stuff like that. So the reason why I love AMD is um, A, dependency management. It's really, really useful for that, even if you're just talking about sort of um, on page load or you're talking about dynamic dependency resolution. So uh, I think someone mentioned the idea of dynamically pulling in content uh, when a user needs it, which, you know, a number of large applications do these days. And it, it makes it extremely trivial to handle things that way. Um, it handles the synchronous loading really, really well. It, uh, you know, it's it's used by a number of major libraries like Dojo, jQuery, Mutools, Mutools 2, sorry. Um, runs well in the browser, has plugin support. You can sort of export AMD. Exports in AMD can be of any format. You can have like objects, you can have JSON, functions, numbers, anything you want. Um, and I, I like that it's somewhat compatible with ECMAScript Next or ECMAScript Harmony using translation tools. Uh, but yeah, I, I like AMD for, for all those reasons and, and more. Um, CommonJS is a nice alternative that some people like it. You know, you don't have the same define wrapper to worry about. Um, but I, I sometimes feel that, that CommonJS works better on the server than it does in the browser. And, you know, although both of them do translate to Harmony, I just prefer AMD. All right, cool. Well, we're, we're out of time. So, uh, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Um, did we warn you about picks, Addy? No, no, you didn't. Okay. Surprise. So I, I'm I'm really trying to uh, get better about that, but anyway, um, so basically the idea is is we just pick things that we we like or enjoy. I mean, we we've had people pick music or books or TV shows or movies. We you know we also tend to pick things that help us in our programming. So you know we've picked tools and IDEs and what have you. So um, you know feel free to just think about you know those kinds of things, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll make Jameson start off so you can kind of get an idea of how this works. Um, all right, so my first pick is prismatic it's an app that does a bunch of uh like social network analysis machine learning and natural language processing to basically recommend interesting articles to you and i think there's been some other stuff like this before but prismatic has been far and away the best um tool like this that i've ever seen as far as signal to noise ratio and actually getting things that i'm interested in i think it's in beta which means you might need an invite but i i I just like signed up for it and got in so maybe it's maybe it's more open now um my other pick is a Vim plugin called Vim CoffeeScript. Um, starting to do a lot more CoffeeScript development. And one of my complaints with CoffeeScript was that you're debugging in a different language than you're writing in. And this kind of helps alleviate that problem because you can highlight a section of, of CoffeeScript code and, and with a command just compile it into um, the JavaScript that it creates so you can kind of debug stuff. And um, it, it has a bunch of other nice features for that as well. And uh, I'll do one more. Uh, it's a book called Coders at Work. Um, it's a bunch of interviews with great minds in software development and computer science. And it's kind of leaned a little bit more towards the old guard kind of people from the, the 80s and 90s and, and earlier. Uh, and, and it's just really cool. There was a, there were a lot of people in it that I had never heard of, but turns out they were incredibly influential in the things that I use day to day. It's just a really good read about, about people's solving technical problems and, and doing interesting stuff. Um, and uh, oh yeah, one more pick. So Udacity, it's one of these online course things that was started up by Stanford. I, I got my sister and my dad to sign up for the CS 101 class, which is awesome. I'm trying to turn them into nerds. That's it. <laughs> Nerd converter, huh? <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Joaquin, what are your picks? Um, 
well, I'm going to take a plus one, uh, PLO, PLOS one. It's uh, now the largest scientific journal, um, and it's uh, open access, which basically means that you know even us unaffiliated people can go in and read stuff. And I've been spending more time than I should on that, and that's why it's my only. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I'll go ahead and jump in and go next. So um, I'm going to do a couple of picks, basically just right off of my browser here. Uh, the first one is I have an Amazon wish list. Uh, uh, you can't in. pick your wish list. Chuck. Right. I have the That's plug. Cheating. No, I'm just saying. I have this okay. plugin, okay? And it makes it nice for me to add stuff to my wish list. But the thing that I really love about Amazon is Amazon Prime. Um, basically, what you get out of that, um, I haven't tried getting the free access to the videos, but I guess you get free access to several videos. You also get free access to certain, to the lending library for certain ebooks. But the big thing is you get two day shipping for free. And uh, I'll tell you, I have already earned back what I spent on mm. Amazon Prime <laughs> with the free shipping, just ordering equipment for uh, producing the audio shows and things like that, um, along with a whole bunch of other junk that I didn't need to buy. So um, Amazon Prime is definitely a pick. Um, one other one that I have here is a, it's a color picker and it's it's an eyedropper tool. I'll actually put a link in the show notes, but uh, basically if you click on it, then you can click anywhere else in your browser and it will give you back the um, the hex uh, number for the, for the color. So uh, um, I'll just uh, put that in here as well. And uh, then the other one that I have that I really like is LastPass. Um, I'm not sure. I know a lot of people use 1Password um, and I, I used that one a while ago and I, I don't know why, but it just didn't work for me the way that I wanted it to, but LastPass really does. It's nice too because I can actually share my passwords with my um, virtual assistant and then he can go ahead and do things like post podcast episodes and um, you know log into the websites and, and things like that that I've got up. So it, it really pays off that way and I really, really uh, dig it. So um, those are my picks. Um, Addy, do you have any? Yeah. Uh, so I've got a few picks. Um, the first one is something that, that might have been shared on, on the show before. I'm not sure. Uh, it's idiomatic.js by Rick Waldron. It's essentially an up-to-date JavaScript style guide if you, if you want to write sort of consistent, idiomatic, sensible JavaScript. And I, I recommend everybody check it out. Um, it's something that I'm trying to sort of update all of my current projects to follow, but it's it's really, really useful. Uh, my next pick is oh, a project about semicolon. Don't start. <laughs> <laughs> Comma first, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's it's great. We've, we've had enough about semicolons today. Sorry this, this to derail you. Holy, holy. Right. The next one is a project called Pulley. Um, my friend Sandra Sorhas, uh, Mike Sharoff, and John Resig um, sort of have been updating this project. And the idea behind Pulley is that it's a really easy to use GitHub pull re- request lander. And it makes it easy to avoid sort of messing up pull requests. And, and ending up in like a messy commit stream where you've got ticket trackers that don't automatically close tickets and, and all that stuff. But it can squash all of the code for a single for a pull request into like a single commit, which can just make it a little bit easier to read. But they've just released a brand new version, like I think an hour ago. So it's 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 useful to put that out there. Um, my last recommendation is a project called Code Painter, and the idea behind Code Painter is that it can help you define um, like a JavaScript style guide that you then force. Um, or or sort of used to lint a piece of code. So if if you write a style guide and you want to make sure that you know whatever code you're committing to a project is following that style guide, 
Code Painter can be useful for that. Um, it's it's an idea, like the whole idea of, of code linting is something that, style, sorry, JavaScript style linting is something that a few different people are looking at at the moment. Um, Anton Kovolevov, sorry, I, I can never pronounce his last name, but he's the guy behind JS Hint. And he's currently looking at ways of implementing this idea in the next version of JS Hint. So that should be pretty interesting. Um, and, uh, there are a few other people that are looking at ways of making, you know, the concept of JavaScript code settlements a little easier, including Bjorn Zafer and me. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's it for my recommendation. All right, cool. It looks like AJ had a few picks too. Um, he, he's picking Steve Jobs, One Last Thing in Pirates of Silicon Valley. And, uh, anyway, it looks like, uh, you can watch him for free if you have Amazon Prime or on YouTube. So anyway, um, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up and, uh, just, just want to thank you again, at Addy, for coming on the show. Not yeah, at all. Thank you. This was awesome. Um, we're, we're talking about doing a book club. So, uh, keep an ear out for that. And, uh, over the next few weeks, here, let me pull up my list here. Um, one person that, if you're interested in MVVM that we're going to be talking to in a few weeks is Steven Sanderson from Knockout JS. So um, if you want to uh, if you want to hear more about that, then uh, then that you know we're going to be talking to him on the eighth of May. Um, we're also going to be talking to uh, Chris from Component One. Um, they have a tool called Widgmo, and it's it's done using the SVG libraries for JavaScript. And so uh, we're going to be talking to him on the first uh, next week. It doesn't look like we're going to be doing an episode. I'm going to be out of town. Yehuda's going to be out of town. Um, and we just haven't uh, lined up a good way to get this recorded. So, um, you know, we're going to skip next week and we'll, we'll catch you the week after that. So uh, anyway, thanks for listening and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again.